In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Today's gospel story takes place at a well. What does a well make you think of? A few things come immediately to my mind when I think of a well. The first thing for me, a person of a certain age that I think about with a well, is that it is a scary thing a child can fall into. Children fall down wells and it is hard to get them out. I remember playing in my backyard in the late 1980s, fearful that a well would suddenly appear that I would fall into. And I might be lost for days and days trying to get out. What else does a well make you think of? There is the more archetypal image of a well, not ripped from the headlines, but rather from fairy tales. A well for maidens to sit near as they gaze into the deep, dark water and think of their plight perhaps throwing a wish into it. Along those lines, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch a few years ago about the idea, making fun of the idea of this kind of a well. It's one of SNL's famous fake TV commercials. This one parodying a kid's toy commercial. Instead of a play kitchen or a Power Wheels car, the commercial is for a Fisher Price style well for your sensitive child to sit by and stare into. The voiceover starts, when they're playing, some kids can be four star chefs. Some want to win the race, but some just long to be understood. Introducing Wells for Sensitive Little Boys from Fisher Price. The commercial continues with all this ad copy about kids who are a little different than normal, who long for a toy that they can wish upon, confide in, and reflect by. When another kid in the neighborhood questions the toy well, what's that boy doing? That toy is weird. The sensitive boy's mother butts in, every toy is for you. This one toy is for him. And the voiceover comes back, Wells for Boys from Fisher Price. I can't help but think of this sketch when I read today's gospel passage for a few reasons. The first is, is there a more sensitive boy than Jesus? And here he is, right at the beginning of this story, tired out by his journey and sitting by the well. And another reason the SNL sketch reminds us that difference, that living outside of society's norms can give us power in this life. You really can picture Jesus sitting by the well, 
perhaps catching a glimpse of his own reflection in the water, perhaps with a deep sigh. Wells, when going down this path of connection, represent contemplation, solitude, and outsider status. A person who spends time at a well is someone who is sensitive to something outside the norm. Now, of course, that's my modern lens through which I am viewing a well, and certainly this image is romanticized a bit because our society, at least the one I live in in 2023 New York City, is separate from the daily reality or need for a well. I don't have to go to one each morning with a bucket just so that I may have water at my home. So what images did a well conjure then for the first readers of John's text, the first hearers of John's text? Was there a similar archetype to the sensitive boy by the well then? Probably wasn't exactly like my associations, but we do know a little bit about earlier mentions of wells in scripture. Specifically, the Hebrew scripture Jesus and his followers knew. The scholar Jennifer Barshaw notes in Genesis 29, Jacob meets his future wife Rachel at a well at midday. A generation before, Abraham's servant had found Isaac's wife Rebekah at a well. The first Christians to experience John's gospel read aloud would have recognized this scene as soon as they heard that Jesus stopped at a well at noon. So early hearers of this story wouldn't have thought of SNL, of course, but they would have thought of a wedding. Just when Jesus begins to talk to this woman about her life. There are a few things to note about this conversation between Jesus and this woman. This is the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in any of the Gospels. This is the first time Jesus says, I am, in the Gospel of John. A repeated turn of phrase which points to his being the Messiah. And it is the only time in the gospel he reveals his I amness to another person. And so it is amazing then what we learn about this woman that she has had five husbands, that she is a Samaritan woman outside of the Jewish family from which Jesus comes and to whom Jesus has primarily been speaking. Why does Jesus choose her? The Samaritan woman who has the longest conversation with Jesus becomes the first evangelist, the first person in the Gospels to tell the good news of Jesus. People believe because of what she is able to say to them about him. Over the millennia of interpretation of this scripture, 
There have been many slight variations on a similar theme, that this is a story of a sinful woman changing her life after an encounter with Jesus, turning away from what must have been her fault, five failed marriages, to a life of joy and fulfillment in Jesus. But I think we often don't give Holy Scripture enough credit for its many nuances, for its depth, for the things it points to. Our own modern understanding of marriage blurs our reading of this woman's story. In fact, a woman could never initiate the dissolution of a marriage. And so that she has had five husbands surely points to a life of great abandonment and loss. Further, the number five is just odd enough to make us wonder why the author of John might have chosen it. Numbers in scripture often serve dual purposes to tell us something that lies just beyond the text. The number 12, for instance, always reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel. The number seven, in contrast, is a universal number pointing us to expansion beyond the Jewish people. So what is the number five? It could possibly point to something about this woman's identity as a Samaritan since there were five political powers that ruled Samaria. With that one small detail, suddenly we can see Jesus' reference to her life not as an indictment of her character, but as a nod to her identity. Using the trope of a well, which calls the listeners' minds to marriage, we then see her conversion to following Jesus as a marriage into a new life with God, a life of possibility, a life full of power, a life where she is able to leave behind forever the jar she daily used to collect water by the well, for she finally has what she needs within herself. This past week, I was able to attend a conference hosted by the Episcopal Parish Network, a national consortium of resourced Episcopal parishes. Folks come together to dream and think about the future of the church. One of the keynote speakers was a powerful woman and leader, Bishop Vicentia Gabe the Bishop of Lesotho. Lesotho is a country entirely surrounded by the country of South Africa, a country which is officially still a kingdom ruled by a monarchy. Gabe was a priest in the surrounding South Africa, a rector at a small church there who was then called to serve as a dean and president of a respected theological college. A couple years ago, she was asked to run for Bishop of Lesotho, a complicated political position within the Anglican Church there, and a role which had previously been held before he was archbishop by Desmond Tutu. 
Gabe said of being asked to run for bishop, she thought at the worst she might be being punished by being asked to go to Lesotho. Perhaps the established church or the academy wanted to get rid of her. At best, she thought she was being set up to fail as an unmarried woman who was also a priest. She could not imagine how a place like Lesotho would be able to listen to her at all, let alone recognize her authority as their bishop. But she decided to trust the Holy Spirit and follow her call to be a part of this election. And in late 2021, she was elected the first woman to be bishop of Lesotho. The amazing things didn't end there, however. A few short months later, she got an email in her inbox from Archbishop Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And this email asked her quite directly to be the preacher at the opening worship service for the Lambeth Conference, the once a decade meeting in the UK of all the bishops across the Anglican Communion. She shared uh, in her talk that she was convinced this email was a scam, either a friend making fun of her or someone trying to embarrass her. There was no way the Archbishop of Canterbury could be asking her to do this in an email. And yet it wasn't. He was asking her to be, as he put it, the preacher of the decade. She shared how she needed to work with her spiritual director to escape the feelings of imposter syndrome that immediately grasped her. She could possibly, as if she could possibly, have anything to say to a room full, a church full of over 600 bishops, almost all of whom had been bishops far longer than she had. And her spiritual director said to her, you must put this out of your head or you won't be able to say anything. It's not a scam. He asked you to speak because he knows God will speak through you. And you cannot stand in the way of that with your own fear, fear or feelings of inadequacy. What God needs you to do is set that aside. This is what Jesus says to you today, too. In whatever way you are on the outside. And every single one of us has some piece of us that makes that so. Whether it is the way we look or where we come from, what we do for a living, what we think is funny, what we love. Whatever piece of you that is odd, or different gives you power. Jesus wants to have a long conversation with you at the side of a well, by the place where you can see yourself in the reflection of the water. And Jesus wants you to see that you are good. Not only that you are good, but that that goodness 
has the power to change the world. Imagine what you can do with it. Amen.